Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer and Brenda Alacy with you up until noon. And we have two more guests this hour, so let's get started. Dr. Tom Russo, Chief of Infectious Disease at Jacobs School of Medicine, joins us this segment. Dr. Russo, good morning. Good morning. Uh, let's start right where we are. We are COVID-19. We are seeing that second surge that we were promised over the summer. Where does this surge compare to March and where does it differ? Well, there's both good news and bad news about the present surge. I think the, the bad news is it's a bit disappointing in that we knew how to prevent this surge. We knew that if we followed public health measures and didn't get together in close quarters, particularly indoors, and you know, not wearing masks and distancing, et cetera, that we could minimize the number of cases. Uh, but unfortunately, it seems, at least for the moment, we've lost our resolve and, and will uh, to uh, you know, comply with those relatively simple measures. You know, people are attributing it to COVID fatigue, uh, et cetera. Uh, so that's, that's disappointing. And the magnitude of cases is actually in some respects, far greater in the upward slope and the rapidity of these cases uh, is just striking compared back to March and April. The good news is so far, and I think the key word is so far, is that uh, bad outcomes have been less, uh, and that's in part due to we have some treatment modalities. It's also part uh, in due to the fact that the most vulnerable know how to protect themselves and they're taking these measures more seriously and uh, not getting infected, and it tends to be younger people which do a little bit better with this disease. However, said that, I'm quite concerned about a ripple effect, and we've got Thanksgiving coming up, and when these younger individuals are getting infected, interact with more vulnerable individuals, we could be in a very difficult situation. About the various vaccines that are being produced, uh, how optimistic are you that we will, in fact, perhaps see something as early as December 11th? And how effective do you think they'll be, given uh, how difficult it is uh, for the logistics with the uh, temperatures that are required and the other things that are required with these vaccines? Well, I'm, I am very optimistic about the vaccines and uh, the news in terms of how efficacious they, efficacious they are and, and uh, seemingly safe is, is quite encouraging. I think we just need to keep in mind, though, that we really have a solid four to five months before we're able to get widespread vaccination into the population and really put a dent in this curve uh, from that point of view. Um, The logistics for at least one of the vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine, which needs to be transported at minus 70 degrees, um, requires special boxes with dry ice. And then when it's thawed, it's only stable for five days. And so that's going to pose some challenges, but I think in Large urban centers, they uh, have that capability. Uh, and remember, the vaccines initially will probably be going into healthcare workers, essential uh, healthcare workers, essential workers, um, where uh, 
those facilities have the availability to do that. The Moderna vaccine uh, is can be transported really close to the freezer temperature, similar to all of our uh, freezers at home, and it's stable for 30 days in the fridge afterwards. So logistically, that's going to be easier. And there's a couple of vaccines that are on the heels of this, and we haven't seen the data yet, but at least the immune response seems encouraging. So I'm hopeful that not only will we have these two, when we look at the, you know, the data, which, again, this is this press release data that we're seeing, but hopefully a couple of more as well and be able to get vaccines to everyone by late spring, early summer. Dr. Russo, you know, we hear a lot about living room spread. That seems to be the most popular. Uh, but we have restaurants and gyms and salons closed locally. Uh, have you seen proof that there has been spread at places like a gym where they have the social distancing and they're wearing masks? Uh, do you think those places do need to be closed because of the risk? Or is that... Since the, since the spread seems to be more living room spread, is closing gyms and restaurants an overreaction? Well, there's unequivocal data that indoor dining increases your risk of getting infected with the new coronavirus. When you think about it, it makes sense, right? People uh, inside without masks for prolonged periods of time, and there's nothing magical about six feet, and there's various uh, ventilations in, in restaurants. And so I think the data is very strong in terms of that we should really stop indoor dining at this point. And I'm actually, frankly speaking, surprised it didn't happen before. Some states did that earlier than us. There is also data that gyms pose an increased risk, albeit that data was generated earlier in the pandemic when processes to mitigate spread weren't uniformly applied. So there's some grayness there. But having said that, you know, when people are at least doing heavy aerobic workouts, uh, you know, they're generating a lot of respiratory particles, which is how this virus is spread. And, um, and mass usage in those individuals and the huffing and puffing is variable. So I think it was a conservative decision by the governor to go ahead and do that because of the biologic plausibility um, that a spread could occur in that scenario. With regards to the nail and hair salons, you know, that's, again, a little bit of a mixed picture. We don't have great data to show the risk is increased, but I think a conservative approach was taken because people will be in close quarters for a significant amount of time. So uh, that one is probably the softest of all of them, but I think given the rapid rise in our cases and trying to turn this around, these were the initial measures that Governor Cuomo felt would be most effective in terms of things that he had control over. You know, Doctor, some of the things that puzzle me, though, about this are these these uh, numbers that seem to come out of thin air. For example, no more than 10 people gathered. And, and as you mentioned, there's no magic in the six feet rule uh, closing at a particular time. It, it just a lot of it seems almost arbitrary to me. Uh, if there are 10 people gathered and somebody's positive, it doesn't matter I, in my mind. Please correct me if I'm wrong. If it's one person infected who may be the source of the infection for those other nine people or a hundred people. Uh, do you find it difficult to kind of wrap your head around these numbers that are used in these criteria? Uh, well, Brenda, it's really, it's about statistics and you're spot on that it just takes one person to be infectious at the gathering and puts all the others at risk. So if the gathering is two people, one of your best friends comes by to see you versus 10 versus a hundred. As the number of individuals increases, the likelihood, however, that someone's infectious increases. And so you're right, the numbers they choose are somewhat arbitrary, 
but as they decrease the number of individuals in the gathering, that decreases the likelihood that someone could be infectious. Now, having said that, I really strongly recommend that if you're going to have any setting indoors when masks are down, which involves food or drink, you really shouldn't have a gathering with anyone outside of your household or your social bubble. Because as you pointed out, it takes just one person. And so I think that's the type of behavior that we really need to stop. No more getting together for the Bills game or dinner parties uh, or whatever social activity that you would like to do. And I get it. But I think we just have to clamp down and stop doing that at this point until we get a grip on things. Um, in terms of masks, I know it's become a very controversial subject. I heard somebody call into a show recently where they said it isn't safe to wear a mask because your uh, carbon dioxide intake can be harmful. Is there any truth to that, doctor? <laughs> there is zero controversy about masks. Masks protect you, and they protect others if you're infectious. If you're wearing surgical masks or cloth masks, there's zero risk of decreasing your oxygenation or retaining carbon dioxide. If you wear an N95 mask for prolonged periods of time, and we're talking about six to eight hours and doing heavy aerobic exercise and have some underlying health problems, maybe a little bit, but really not enough to be physiologically significant. So at the end of the day, we just have to forget there's no controversy about masks. The only controversy is how it's been politicized. Please, everyone wear their masks and wear good masks at all times. It is our best way to get through these next four to five months until we get to the vaccine. And, you know, I stress, have a mask collection. I have one for all my favorite sports teams. Uh, so it goes with my outfit the day my teams are playing or attempting to play, depending on the team we're talking about. Uh, Dr. Russo, you know, we passed the 250,000 deaths a, um, this week, and the United States have been has been hit hard by COVID nineteen, especially with with deaths. Uh, I, I wonder if you attribute that to our actions, because I think you probably see that around the world as well. Or what were we des- were we already at a a loss because of our lack of health? We, you know, we have a high obesity rate. Has that played into the death count here in the United States with COVID nineteen? So it's sort of a combination of things. You know, first, our behavior has been poor in terms of following public health measures. And because of it, then we've had many, many more infections. So if you look at a number of East Asian countries where they have bought into masks, they have, you know, less of an egocentric type of approach that we have here in the United States or in Western Europe, you know, uh, wearing a mask violates my constitutional rights. In these East Asian countries, people have said, Yeah, they bought into it. If we all wear masks, we'll keep everyone safe. It's good for family and community. And the infection rates are extraordinarily low. Taiwan, as of a week ago, hadn't had a case in 200 days. I just think about that compared to how many cases we have. And then once you start having cases, of course, the underlying health of the population comes into play for bad outcomes. And people have estimated that 40, maybe upward of 50% of the U.S. population is somewhat vulnerable, with the younger age groups, obesity being a major risk factor. Um, So we, to a degree, are responsible for our own fate here, both in terms of, you know, increasing the number of infections based on our behavior, and then our underlying health is less than excellent and has put us in increased risk. 
And also, speaking of, you know, the epidemic that we had before the pandemic, the obesity epidemic, after we're staying at home, and again, I understand the guidelines are, are to defeat COVID, but after COVID has passed, after we hopefully have a successful vaccine, uh, do you see, you know, in May and June, the obesity epidemic could be a lot worse than it was just a year ago? Yeah, you know, it's just, you know, we talk about the, the, the freshman, you know, uh, uh, 15 pounds is this bit of the COVID 15 as well, right? Because we're hunkered down indoors. And of course, this type of year, uh, as we move indoors with the holiday makes it even worse. Um, you know, I hope though that, um, you know, some good will come of this, obviously, uh, a very, very difficult situation that we could learn something from it. And one of it is that, uh, both at the individual and population level, there's certain things that we could control and that will be beneficial for our long-term health. And one of them is obviously trying to get the obesity uh, epidemic in this country under control. Uh, so perhaps some good will come of this and we'll be able to gather ourselves. And when we get on the other side of this pandemic, and all pandemics will end and we will do so, um, that we could start to institute a variety of measures that will be uh, good for the health of the country. We've got uh, some of our listeners texting in questions, uh, Dr. Russo. But first, I want to mention, mentioned, I saw a report last night about Sweden, and there was a lot of talk about how Sweden was really handling the pandemic well, and there was talk about herd immunity. And lo and behold, Sweden's uh, cases of the pandemic of the coronavirus are spiraling out of control again. Any thoughts on uh, the, the way Sweden handled it and the concept of herd immunity? Yeah, I think it's a concept that has been uh, rejected by most public health officials. And people have to keep in mind that Sweden has really had a modified approach to this. They relied more on the public sort of affecting public health measures, and they didn't completely close down way back in March and April like uh, other countries. Uh, having said that, um, their death rate is uh, almost tenfold greater than their neighboring nations, which are very similar demographically in size, et cetera, I could say compared to Norway. It's really a failed approach. And when you think about it, we know that you are going to have both immediate or acute consequences of getting infected with the coronavirus. You're going to have a certain percent of the population that's going to have a bad outcome and die. But what we're also learning is there's both intermediate consequences. So if you recover, you still could be significantly disabled for weeks or even months afterwards. And there's now increasing concern about potential long-term consequences in terms of maybe even years or decades later because this virus involves not just the lungs but a variety of organs and even asymptomatic and mildly symptomatic young individuals that have had heart scans two months afterwards show significant evidence of inflammation. So if that inflammation translates into organ damage, this could be quite consequential years to come. So our best strategy at this point to avoid both these acute, intermediate, and long-term consequences is not to get infected. The vaccine is coming. We just have to hold on for about four or five more months. Doctor, uh, somebody writes into the text board who is a dental uh, professional, a dental uh, hygienist, I believe, believe, and she asks, if this virus is spread through aerosols, why would dental offices be open and hairdressers closed? I'm a dental professional and very aware of the aerosols we create with high-speed drills, et cetera. Are the closings based on research or just guessing? Well, the closings, as we already covered earlier, are partly based on research. 
Um, but remember, we need to make our best decisions based on what I call sort of biologic plausibility and understanding transmission routes. I actually share that dental hygienist concerns. There's a lot of aerosolization that occurs, uh, and depending on the setup of the dental office and how they're able to separate individuals and protect various workers, there, there is the potential for significant risk in that setting. It's good to know, and it certainly gives you pause about what to do. <laughs> Another question, Doctor, is the emergency COVID notification that is on iPhones uh, updated being used, and what data has it given uh, to the politicians uh, on exposures, testings, quarantining? Is there such data? Yeah, there's a variety of apps that are out there. Some countries have used them extraordinarily successfully. You know, you need everyone to buy in with a single platform. It's almost sort of like our electronic medical records where we have so many different ones that don't talk to each other. And, you know, Apple and Microsoft and states and even at the local level have come out with their own apps. And the apps are only as good as the people that go ahead and use them. Um, so I would say it dates this sort of lack of a centralized approach, something that comes down from the top. Uh, is uh, as is resulted in us not being able to t take optimal advantage of such technology, which is which has worked well elsewhere. You know, we we are uh, at least have the diversion of the Buffalo Bills, although this is a bye week. But uh, the question remains that you see players on the sidelines with masks, some with some without masks, uh, and uh, Mark from West Seneca brings up this point too. Uh, why are some players wearing masks, others aren't? Uh, what's the impact of that? Well, <laughs> oh, man, I mean, you know, they should be wearing masks. And I think that, you know, uh, the professional athletes have had the luxury of having uh, more rapid and regular testing than most of us, right? However, uh, you get this false sense of security if you have a negative test because on a given day you could have a negative test, and that may be because, you know, the amount of infectious particles is below the detection level of the test, um, or it may be that, the next day or the day after that is the day that you're actually going to become infectious. Um, you know, whenever, whenever we're in close quarters with someone outside of our social bubble or, you know, our household, we should be practicing mask usage and distancing, and that's the best way to go ahead and stop the spread. I mean, you know, I think, as you should know, there's a number of our professional athletes that have gotten infected with the coronavirus, right? And the leagues have been variously successful with their strategies, and uh, I think the plans are fine, but if the players don't execute them, it's going to be problematic. And, and obviously this year, in the year of COVID, if certain players get infected, that's going to have a tremendous impact on uh, their success and outcomes. And so they should be taking this seriously. Uh, I would like to see them wearing masks at all times when they can, um, but as you know, uh, our mask usage has been imperfect. Dr. Russo, talking about the NFL and college football, you know, when you have an outbreak, it seems to be a few players on the team, right? Like uh, with the Bills, we had the tight ends uh, had it because of, uh, of, of Tyler Croft. Um, but you look at the Tennessee Titans had a huge COVID outbreak. Uh, they had to cancel two games and we had to play them on a Tuesday. Um, but when they played the Vikings a day before testing positive, not one Vikings player got co uh, had COVID-19. Is there a reason for that? Why it doesn't spread in play? Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I was, I was quite surprised by that. I've been very concerned that in certain sports, uh, even though they're outdoors, 
you know, you're in close proximity, right? And if someone's infectious, you say, oh, my gosh, they're, you know, uh, that's just a, a setup for the uh, coronavirus to go wild. I think probably the factor that saved them, and we don't know how many of those individuals on the field were infectious, by the way, and what position they were. So a wideout being infectious is less of a risk than, say, a center, right? <laughs> right in the middle of the pack. But I think the fact that we know outdoors the virus gets dispersed readily, um, and I think uh, that's why outdoor activities are, are much safer than indoor activities, and while we're getting in a bit of trouble now as we shift to indoors. So I think that was probably the factor in terms of we're not sure how many were infected on the field, which players, but primarily because they were outdoors, the virus was getting dispersed, and, and they sort of dodged a bullet on that one. Dr. Thomas Russo, thank you so much, doctor, for your time this morning. We look forward to talking with you uh, down the road, and I'm sure we'll have many more conversations about uh, the coronavirus. Thanks and stay safe. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Take care, guys. Thank you. We'll take a quick break, catch up on news headlines, and much more Hardline to come right after this. Welcome back to Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. It is the final segment of the. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. The Bills by Week edition of Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer and Brenda Alacy with you. And joined this segment by the Hamburg Schools Superintendent Michael Cornell. Uh, Superintendent Cornell, good morning. Call me Mike, please. Mike, good morning. <laughs> uh, now, we uh, went into orange last week. Tomorrow will be the first day schools have to um, shut down to remote-only learning. What does this week look like for the Hamburg School District? Well, um, it's going to be a week of of transition. Uh, Our educators have had a good amount of time to prepare this time as opposed to last time, and I think that uh, the learning that students experience will undoubtedly reflect that. Um, All of our students will be fully remote, uh, it's going to require some patience on, on all sides. You know, our teachers have worked really, really hard to get ready, working on new technologies, new teaching methods. It'll be the first time that students are going to be in the, the same learning space at the same time because under hybrid, we're only able to have half the students. Um, so, you know, it's going to be uh, a new experience for everybody, and, you know, I'm sure that we're going to be patient with each other and we're going to make the best of it. Micah, what about the uh, the children who may not have access to the internet? Is that an issue at all for your your community population? Well, we've been working with with students who may lack access to the internet or access to a, a device since September, because students have had to to learn remotely since September for at least a couple of days a week. So. Um, our, our counselors, social workers, our teachers, our principals have been in constant communication with parents and students to understand exactly what the challenges are and try to overcome them. So uh, we think we've got a pretty good handle on it now, but you can rest assured that we'll keep our ear to the ground and make sure that as uh, challenges emerge, we'll be ready to 
uh, jump on top of them and make sure that students have what they need to learn. With this new way of doing things in the school system and, uh, you know, obviously everywhere, everybody's affected, there is no longer uh, going to the school nurse if you don't feel well. But do you make nurses available to talk about symptoms of COVID-19 to the students uh, virtually? You know, that's an interesting question. We've not been asked to do that thus far. Um, our nurses will be in the buildings on those days. And, you know, my by sense, we have amazing school-based nurses in Hamburg and, and school-based nurses all across Western New York have been asked to do uh, an awful lot uh, to help families through this uh, the crisis and help children. Um, so I have every expectation that if a parent calls one of our nurses and asks some questions about uh, how their child's feeling, uh, that they'll do the best uh, to answer them. Mike, going into the holiday season and next year, do you see a, a potential part where we might be back to school January, February? Uh, is there a hope? Has there been any kind of communication about when you might be able to have kids back in school without the cost of 100% testing? Well, I'm really hopeful, Joe. You know, I think educators across Western New York uh, were very sad to say goodbye to their students on Friday. Um, you know, I, I had, you know, parents talk to me about, you know, children crying uh, over the fact that they won't be there. And I'm sure some educators uh, did as well. Um, you know, the New York State Department of Health has been a responsive partner to school districts. Uh, a couple weeks ago, they issued guidance a couple days apart from each other that really demonstrated that, that they were listening to our needs and listening to the data. Um, and we, we certainly would be open to a conversation with the New York State Department of Health, who are the operative authority here under the microcluster initiative. Uh, we'd be open to a conversation with them about some alteration to the orange zone testing requirements, which are, you know, a very, very high bar. It's very difficult for any school district, which houses no innate public health capacity to take on the substantial public health endeavor. So, you know, absent that, I don't know when we'll come back, um, but perhaps there's an opportunity for conversation where maybe we can arrive at a more workable test out provision under the orange designation. Mike, you must hear from parents uh, in, in every part of the district about how difficult it is to juggle uh, homeschool learning and their own professions. Uh, is that uh, the biggest concern that you hear, uh, aside from the obvious health concern, from parents of your uh, of the kids in your district? Yeah, you know, let's face it. I mean, this is going to require um, much more participation on the part of of parents. Um, you know, there are their parents will be families will be required to be home with children five days a week instead of, of two or three, depending on the district. Um, and, and families are going to be required to actively support children, especially younger children, um, in their learning while they're learning remotely. Um, and and we, you know, we know that that's going to be difficult. As, as I look through our, our remote plan the other day, just in preparation for communicating with the community, um, we have lots of uh, parent resources on our plan, which are live links to help people. But, you know, I hear from parents all the time how difficult it's going to be for them to support their kids remotely. And, you know, the reality of it is for the parents who were, like in Hamburg, 90% of our parents selected in-person hybrid learning. 
those parents have unequivocally stated that their desire is to have their students, their children remain in school. Uh, the fact of the matter is, schools remain safe places for learning and for work. So we've had little, if any, uh, transmission of the disease in our schools. Our transmission rates hover at or below 1%. Uh, every time the school district reports a case, it is in almost every instance a case that was contracted not in the school setting, but at a birthday party or some other setting. So for the, for the 90% of Hamburg parents who selected in-person hybrid learning, they unequivocally want their children in school, not only because remote learning requires more support from families, um, but the, the benefits of in-person learning are, are you know, well-documented, and, you know, we experience those every day. You know, Mike, it's funny. Uh, I was talking to some friends who have younger children, and they were saying how difficult it is for them, the parents, to uh, focus on some of the new math and some of the new things that they really weren't familiar with. Do you feel, in a sense, that you almost have to teach the parents some of the newer models that you use in math and other subjects because they're just not as familiar with it as uh, perhaps back in the day? Well, my, my son's a little older now, but I was right with him when, when my son <laughs> in second grade and third grade trying to teach myself the new math also. Um, it, it, yeah, absolutely. It's difficult for, for parents to uh, harken back to the days of, uh, you know, the causes of the Civil War and, and um, it, some of the, the new math, which seems to be the emphasis of, of a lot of parents' consternation. I think the advice that I would give to parents is to continue to engage with their teachers in dialogue about any of the challenges that they may be having with remote uh, work for their child. And oftentimes what we hear from parents is not the math is clearly a thing, but they're all often worried about the mental and emotional support that schools provide for their children, and uh, they get concerned about the, iso- the, the greater isolation children feel when they don't get to go to school. So whether it's math or the mental or emotional health of their child, parents should feel free to reach out to their teachers or counselors in the Hamburg Central Schools, and, and I know I speak for superintendents around Western New York when I say that our, our folks are ready and willing to help regardless of the challenges that families experience while their children are, are learning remotely. And, you know, Joe and I talk a lot, Mike, about uh, the physical toll this pandemic is taking. And I was curious about whether you're, you're seeing a lot of kids who are becoming, you know, small versions of couch potatoes uh, because they're just home so much, so much and they're not able to really exercise and engage in some physical activity that's so important to us both mentally and physically. Um, Is the Hamburg District doing anything to address these kids who are spending so much time at home now and maybe sitting in front of their Xbox or sitting in front of the TV? So I'll tell you a story. My my wife and I and and my son and some friends of ours took a walk down by 18 Mile Creek in Hamburg a couple of Sundays ago. And we were, you know, we walked down the trail and we're heading back and we were going to walk into the village and grab something to eat. And there was a student, I think a middle school age student who was, uh, we had encountered earlier in our walk and then, and then again, and we just said hi to him. And my wife struck, struck up a conversation with him 
And he said, I'm out getting my, my steps for, for gym class. <laughs> so our physical education teachers in Hamburg and really all across Western New York, I think have done a great job of, of trying to help children of all ages find ways to engage in physical activity so that they can stay healthy and well. So, um, you know, I see it on paper and I talk to my folks all the time about what we're requiring students to do and why, but it was nice to see, you know, a young man on a, on a beautiful Sunday afternoon out for a walk and, and, you know, he didn't know who I was. Um, you know, it wasn't a student who had run into a ton at school, but telling my wife that he was out because he was fulfilling his physical education requirements on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. Mike, what is the deal with um, high school sports for the winter season? Are there sports that are being played, um, or is that now all on pause because we are in the orange cluster? Well, I think the section, section six, has been uh, trying to digest the guidance that we've gotten from the New York State Public High School Athletic Association, who issues guidance in conjunction with the New York State Department of Health, to determine the efficacy of carrying on with some of the low-risk sports like bowling and um, indoor track is one of them. So I think there's some conversation happening about low-risk sports. I think it's safe to say that high-risk sports, what the State Department of Health would consider high-risk sports, are going to be delayed until January at the earliest. You're talking about basketball and and hockey and things like that. So for those sports, we're on hold certainly until after we return from Christmas vacation. Now, I know gyms in the Orange Cluster are closed right now. Do high school athletes have access to the facilities on campus? We have not uh, been able to do that. We've, We've tried to make sure that we provide, you know, a really healthy, safe environment. So we've, we've, allowed facilities to be accessible for uh, physical education classes to the extent that we can do that and follow all the safety guidelines. Um, You know, we certainly have um, provided outdoor, you know, our our track is open, our our turf field is open, and and kids are on that all the time during the day. And certainly while soccer was happening in field hockey, uh, you know, the outdoor facilities were readily available and well used in, in, in the fall. So, um, you know, those are the things that are out there. And, and even even today, you know, or, well, not today, but up until last week, um, all of our physical education classes uh, had an outdoor opportunity for kids. And we've been using the gym inside. But in terms of the weight rooms and things like that, we've not made those available to students because it would be difficult to comply with all the safety requirements around them on, in schools. Mike, what about kids who uh, are hungry and rely on the school for meals? I mean, maybe we wouldn't think necessarily of suburban districts like Hamburg as having an issue like that, but is that something that you deal with on a regular basis? Well, we have about a 25 or 28% free and reduced price lunch uh, percentage. So poverty is a challenge in, in Hamburg, and poverty is a challenge across western New York. And all school districts, including Hamburg, have plans to feed uh, families while we're remote. We did it all spring. We did it all summer. Um, we've been providing meals for families on the off-campus days. So we have students who qualify who are in school two days a week and then not in school physically three days a week. And we've been providing meals for families on the off-campus days. So we've been able to enhance and modify that plan for 
uh, a fully remote situation like what we have now. So we'll be ready come Monday to provide the same uh, comprehensive meal service to families that we, we always have. So um, that's, that's a, it's something that we know is the right thing to do morally. We've been, we've been directed to do it by the state. We've been given guidelines and, and help from the state and from the federal government in terms of some uh, federal subsidies around how that happens. So uh, Hamburg will be ready to do that come Monday, and, and so will all school districts in western New York. Mike, one last one for you, and this is more just I'm, uh, I'm curious. Uh, you know, with students now learning from home, will teachers be teaching from home, or will they have access to their classroom? Uh, it depends district by district. So in, in Hamburg, we, we let the teachers know that the building will be open and accessible to them. And I know a great many teachers prefer to be able to teach when they have all of their stuff around them. Uh, But we also recognize that there may be circumstances that make that difficult for some of our teachers. So um, we've told teachers as long as the work is great and, you know, we know the work will be great, um, then you can uh, work from home. And, um, you know, we know that they have uh, technology to be able to do that, district managed technology to be able to do that well. So we've given people the choice. And, you know, we know that educators love and care for their children as, as though they, they were their own, not just in Hamburg, but across Western New York. So we're really confident in our planning and really confident in our people and, and comfortable with the fact that children will learn and learn well in Hamburg and across Western New York in a fully remote model. But it's important to note, too, and I think we'd all readily recognize it, but it should be said, that no matter how good the remote learning is, and it will be good, it certainly is not any type of, uh, of a reasonable long-term replacement for in-person learning of children. 100%. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking time out of your Sunday to join us, and I'm sure we will be talking again soon. Okay, good talking to you. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Thank that- you very much, and happy Thanksgiving. That is Michael Cornell, the superintendent of the Hamburg School District. And uh, Brenda, another COVID full show. And it looks like, you know, I don't, I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But it does look like if the numbers don't uh, continue going up, uh, or if they don't stop going up, that we could be in a red cluster as soon as Wednesday. I hope that's wrong. I, I hope that these numbers either stay or can or start dropping uh, because the last thing I would want, especially the holiday season, is to see more businesses have to close their doors. Joe, the timing could not be worse if we go uh, to the red zone. And I certainly hope that uh, those numbers, as you say, continue to, to drop and not continue to spike and that we get this uh, get a handle on this and get this turned around. It's a very difficult time. I mean, we heard the distress from the business owners in our first hour, how difficult it's been. And these folks have been complying and spending a lot of money to comply with these various mandates that have been put in place. And yet here we are back in the orange. So, you know, everybody, please be responsible, be respectful. Um, Last night I missed out on a a get together with some friends from work, but it just to me isn't worth the risk. And it's tough. I mean, I really uh, miss seeing people. I miss being around friends and family, but it, uh, it's something that we all have to be careful with. And hopefully with the good news about these vaccines uh, coming rather quickly, uh, I really hope that we can get this 
under control, we can all get vaccinated and get back to some semblance of normalcy. That's right. I keep saying, Brenda, you know, the, uh, the one of the first normal events could be the uh, the, the Beamer wedding. I'm just saying it, the Beamer wedding could be one of the first back to normal events uh, back in 2021. And hopefully you won't be trying to find matching masks for uh, your tuxedo and your lovely fiance's uh, wedding gown. No, but you know, if we had to, we would have fun with it. You know, I've got uh, my... I'm sure you would. I've got my mask for every sports team. I got my Virginia Tech, my Bills. Once baseball starts up, I'll get my Mets mask. I'm, I'm at least enjoying uh, matching my masks with my outfit. Yeah, there are some very creative masks out there. And so uh, I, <laughs> I respect how people have found a way to add a little humor into this kind of dark situation that we all find ourselves in. But I wish everybody a happy and safe Thanksgiving. Look forward to talking with you uh, when the next hardline is on the air. That's right. We'll talk to you soon. By the way, this week, 3 to 7, I am in for Tom Bowerly. I hope you will join me. Um, You'll love the music bumps. I'm just going to say, you'll love the music bumps this week, and I'm sure there will be a lot to talk about. Hey, the Bills aren't playing, but there's football on. Enjoy it. Go Denver. I don't want to see Miami tied with the Bills in the division. I'm with you, Joe. I'm a Broncos fan for a week. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. This is WBEN. Meet the Press is next. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 